Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am joined again by James Krieger. I was just saying how everyone should know who James is. If you don't, then at least you should be knowing what Weightology is, which is a fantastic research review, and he's doing amazing work over there. Um, James is a great scientist, author, and a coach. We're just talking about how successful his coaching is currently going, uh, and he's doing amazing work. So I really hope you do already know who James is. And if you haven't checked out episodes thirty-three and one hundred and four of this podcast, we already had some fantastic discussions that went down really well. Uh, without further ado, I want to kind of dig into with James some of kind of the things he's been experimenting on himself. I love seeing how James kind of, he does the research and he experiments on himself and then will maybe apply this to kind of clients and things. So I think first of all, James, if we can talk about a little bit of the kind of targeted volume approach you talked about where you had kind of some cyclical volume ramps and you were kind of pushing upon biceps, triceps and chest, I think at the time. I don't know if you want to kind of talk through what that looked like for you um, and then kind of what results you saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I had to say, I mean, um, I've always been a pretty much a hard gainer and, um, um, and, and I will always say that, you know, one of my weakest body parts has always been my arms. Uh, and, um, and after, you know, Brad and I and, and Brett and everybody else published the one volume study, I, I, um, the thing that intrigued me about our results was something that didn't, didn't make it into the final paper, but I, I know Brad is preparing another manuscript for this is that um, we looked at responders and non-responders and uh, um, and what we found was that there were way more responders in the higher volume groups, especially the highest volume group. Um, and that actually matches up with the literature on endurance training. So, you know, there's been studies in the past few years that have suggested, you know, um, that people who are non-responders to endurance training, if you just give them more volume, they suddenly, then they'll, then they'll respond. Um, and so we, you know, I was always curious, well, is, is that true with weight training? Cause really, you know, in the past, if, if you look over the history of, you know, weight training and bodybuilding and stuff, you know, it was always thought that hard gainers needed less volume. Like if you look at some of the old, uh, like the hard gainer magazine and, and, you know, Stuart McRoberts, Braun and all those things. Um, it was always pushed that, Oh, you know, hard, uh, hard gainers, they don't recover as well. So they need lower volume and stuff like that. Um, and, um, I've grown more and more skeptical of that over time. Um, especially me being a hard gainer and, and having done low volume training for pretty a good chunk of my training career, and I'm not saying I didn't get results out of it. I did. I mean, you know, compared to where I started, you know, I've made, you know, pretty decent gains compared to where I started. But I always felt like I, I, I felt like, you know, is this it? Is this, yeah. you know, is this as much as I'm going to get? 
And so I got more and more intrigued by um, the idea. And then after, you know, we published our study and, that, you know, I, you know, looking at the, the responder, non-responder results um, and then looking at um, then some, some other anecdotes. So like uh, um, one thing that influenced me too was Jacob Shepis. So Jacob had actually undergone a specialization routine on his arms and, um, and he did a pretty high volume approach and he's got before and after pictures and, and, and he's a well-trained guy. And I was really impressed with the arm growth he got over like a 10 month period. And so, so then I started thinking, I was like, you know, I should try some targeted high volume training. You know, you know, people have looked at our volume study and said, Oh, does this mean you, you're recommending doing, you know, 45 sets per body part? I'm like, no, that's like, that's not what we recommend. But but something that I've mentioned in my research review subscribers and stuff, you know, you can take the results and you can say, Hey, you know, if you got some lagging body parts, um, perhaps doing some targeted high volume training for a period of time might be really effective. And, um, I know Brian Cron, you know, he's a, he's a pretty well-known coach. He does that with his clients. Um, and he actually has a really good article on his site that said something like, uh, I think it was entitled you're, you're too boring to build muscle is, right. is, is what he, he entitled it. And I remember reading that article and it was a similar thing. He was like, you know, as you become more advanced, it gets hard to, to really get any body part to improve, but it's very easy to maintain. And so, so he had an approach of jacking up the volume on a few body parts for a few months, putting everything else on just maintenance and going about it that way. And, um, um, and so I decided, you know what, I'm going to try that. So I decided to do a three-day-per-week program uh, structured somewhat similarly to the volume study that we did. Um, some modifications, obviously, I mean, they were. I was doing whole-body workouts, but, again, it was just specialization. So so I was only doing a fairly high volume for specific body parts. So, um, um, And I used a mix of compound and isolation movements and, and uh, um, ended up doing about 30 sets per week on arms, you know, if you count the direct and indirect work. Right. Um, and I did that for three months. And, and, and what was funny was when I first started it, you know, I was like, gosh, am I going to be able to handle this? You know, three full body workouts a week and all this volume and stuff. And it, it actually wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. It was actually, it, what was interesting is I think what people don't realize is you can adapt to your training load you know, if you build up to it, and that's one of the things I did, I decided, you know, I didn't just jump into to doing 30 sets per week. I actually started at one set per exercise. And then I used my, next day soreness as a gauge of like, okay, do I need to stay at this volume or can I increase it? Right. Um, and so as long as if I wasn't sore the next day, then I added another set the next session. If I got sore, I stayed at that until, you know, and so on until I ramped up to full volume, which in about two to three weeks, I was up to full volume. Um, and what's interesting is I, I was never sore. I didn't have any joint issues. Now, I did modify the training a little bit so that um, I was doing like 12 to 15 reps per set rather than 8 to 12, partly just because that's a li- it's just a little bit easier on my joints because I'm, you know, 45 years old. But uh, um, um and I used, you know, fairly joint-friendly exercises too, you know, dumbbells, right. you know, things like that. Uh, um, so, um, but, you know, I didn't have any joint issues. I had no soreness. Um, you know, all I would have is I'd have some, maybe some muscle stiffness the next day after training that would really subside by the end of the day. 
and then I'd be ready to go and I'd be recovered by the next session, even though it was, you know, it was only 48 hours between sessions. You know, and if you think about it, I was doing 10 sets per muscle group per session. So, you know, like 30, 30 sets per week, three days per week. So, you know, uh, you know, I was recovering just fine. And so I did that for three months until I finally was, wasn't able to really, well, I was no longer seeing really increases in volume load. Um, and I think mentally I was starting to feel a little bit drained yeah. too. Um, but I had great gains. I added probably around a quarter inch to my arms nice. um, and set personal bests and a bunch of exercises. And what was interesting is then after that, I decided to, to cut my volume and then I continued to set personal bests and exercises because I think now I, I got some recovery um, and then I was able to basically express, uh, you know, because sometimes accumulated fatigue can mask some of your strength gains. Um, and I was able to express those new strength gains. So, so it was a very successful experiment for me. Um, and now it's something I use with some of my clients who are at least looking to grow certain body parts or things like that. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I thought it was really successful. And, and I would say that um, there's more data in the literature that's probably coming out to support that. Um, nice. So um, D'Souza is the name of the author. I think he's in, uh, he's in, is he a Brazilian researcher? I don't remember. But um, he just finished a study and he tweeted about it. And it was a volume study and they did uh, fairly advanced trainees. Um, they had three different levels of volume. Judging by the data posted, it didn't look like there were any significant differences between groups. But he tweeted, he, he told me something that was interesting. Um, when they, they separated out the responders and non-responders, the responders were people who had increased their volume relative to what they did before this prior to the study. And I was talking to Brad about it, and it sounds like they, they basically increased their volume by approximately, I think he said six weekly sets or something like that, I think on average. But uh, so that's more evidence that, you know, if, if you're in a rut on a body part, bumping the volume up, you know, unless you're already training with a, a lot of volume, um, bumping the volume up is probably a great way to, to get it to grow, you yeah. know, so. No, I think that's fascinating, and it's really interesting to hear how obviously the research you've done has actually impacted the way then you've gone forward with your own training and you've seen it with yourself and others and experimented with it. Something I'm interested in is, is there a reason you went for the three day per week frequency? Is that kind of lifestyle constraints or what made you do that? Yeah. Yeah. It was partly lifestyle constraints. You know, I just, you know, with my family and business and stuff, I, you know, I, I can only get to the gym three to four days per week. And yep. for me to get 30 sets in per week, um, um, I just felt it was better to split that volume up into three sessions rather than trying like an upper lower split. So, um, so that's why I did the, that's why I did the three days per week. And plus I wanted to somewhat emulate the study we did right. just out of curiosity. Um, cause there were so many people that were like, Oh, there's no way people could do this. I'm like, well, they did it. I mean, yeah. they obviously yeah. did it. Um, uh, now, um, I certainly wouldn't want to do what they did in the study. Of course, I'm also 45. Maybe if I was in my twenties, like those guys were, I probably wouldn't be, have much of an issue with it, but, uh, um, but yeah, but I at least did it for specific body parts and it worked out, it worked out really well. So no, that's, it's really cool because I know we were talking off air and actually about kind of, you were saying how my, I was looking in pretty good shape and some of the things you were talking about there is some things I've been incorporating in my off season, apart from, I've not necessarily picked body parts, but I have much more time at my disposal. So my frequency is six times per week. And I actually yeah. end up splitting my sessions to AM and PM 
So my actual volume ramps, like I can end up doing it across my whole body. And um, yeah, I've seen, I mean, part of the results I've seen have been tremendous and that's very reflective of kind of what you've seen there and kind of the feedback from the soreness and things is things I've been using. And I don't know if you've spoken much to Mike Israel about it, but a lot of the things you kind of reflected upon there sound similar to kind of his theoretical hypothesis of moving through volume landmarks and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are definitely similarities to, uh, to to some of the things that he talks about. So, Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, to see all the kind of people who are very much at the top of the field in terms of knowledge of hypertrophy, seeking in and finding similarities. This is kind of what I love to see within kind of the research, because I guess it's kind of not that we want to be dogmatic, but it gives avenues to give direction. Um, I don't know if it'll be useful for the listeners. And I'm interested to hear what your definition might have been of like a hard gainer. I don't know if there is like something you specifically have for that or if it's just stubbornness or. Uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, it's one of those things. It's really hard to define, but it's almost you kind of know it when you see it. I mean, um, I mean, in the research, we can define a hard gainer as someone who basically uh, is in the low end of the response. You know, you know, if I've got a study of 30 subjects and and, you know, five of those people have hardly any muscle growth for the same program, then we might, you know, call those people hard gainers. Um, uh, I've always seen the hard gainer as basically someone, you know, who trains hard, trains consistently. They might gain a little bit of muscle, but they just don't seem to gain the amount that other people do in, in response to the same training volumes and training loads, you know. Um, so, um, you know, and I don't think there's any way to really know – you know, sometimes people think of the, the classic hard gainer as the skinny guy, but some skinny guys actually gain quite a bit of muscle when they start training. Others don't. So so just because you're thin doesn't mean you're necessarily a hard gainer. Um, you know, um, it, it really just you just have to start training and just see how you respond over over an extended period of time, really. So, yeah, I think uh, the extended period of time is quite important as well, because I see some people kind of they get initial really fast results and then peter out and other people are just they slow burn for like years on end and see consistent results so yeah um, yeah that's the kind of way i was i i responded fairly rapidly at first when i started tr first training um but then i kind of just well, kind of leveled off for a while and then i had little spurts up you know and then i'd level off for a long period of time um uh but, you know, like I said, I mean, during all those training years, I did fairly, you know, anywhere from low to moderate training volume. I never really did anything that you really call high volume, uh, you know. Uh, so really, it was only recently that I really started experimenting with that. And, and yeah, it, it worked out, you know. So I've really become, I'm starting to become more of a believer in the idea of volume cycling. So, because um, you can't stay high volume forever. Um because uh, you do hit a rut and you can't just keep increasing your volume whenever you hit a plateau, right? And so, you know, the idea would be, you know, when you when you are training with high volume and you finally hit kind of that plateau, you, you you bring your volume back down because it's very easy to maintain. You can maintain on, you know, maybe a quarter of the volume you were doing. Um, and what that will do is possibly enhance your strength gains um, and also, um, uh, you know, the idea is to kind of resensitize yourself to a volume stimulus. So you go low volume for a while and then you ramp that volume up again to kind of get, you know, get another round of muscle gain, you know? So, so that's kind of the idea, the theoretical idea behind it, at least. Yeah. So. I guess it's, it's kind of like uh, when you start training with those higher volumes, 
I guess there's like fiber type shifting towards like slow twitch and things. I guess inherently people know when you start, like you said, motivation wanes, probably you just don't feel in the gym, like contractions are good. You've seen this yeah. kind of biofeedback. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know with me, it was just like, it was weird. It's also it was mentally, I could just tell when I was done, you know, and I had gone three months and had good gains and I could just, it was getting really hard to improve each session. And, um, and, uh, it was just, and I also found myself starting to drag through the sessions, like, you know, just taking longer rests. And like, I was just, uh, felt like the sessions were getting longer and I was like, okay, this is probably, this is a good time to, to, to stop. So in terms of relative intensities, what were they looking like across that period of time? Did you cycle those or stick to a certain one or anything? I just stayed in the same rep range for everything. It was 12 to 15 reps to, and, and I did pretty much every set to failure or near failure, you know, um, you know, I had some people ask me, I was like, how can you do all that stuff to failure? I was like, well, half of my volume was isolation work. So it's not like it's that big of a deal, you know? Um, uh, um, but, um, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much as far as the effort level was, was fairly high the whole, you know, the whole way through. So, and I was, I was wondering whether, do you think there's sometimes scenarios where people are, they might be intermediate and specialization is generally seen as like an advanced training strategy, but because we live lives like yourself, you kind of have lots of commitments, potentially people kind of get to a point at which they have a, they're not producing enough volume to see the growth. And so actually, even if you're intermediate, if you don't have the ability to do what I'm doing and like train six days per week, potentially having a specialization cycle gives you some growth that you wouldn't have been able to see before. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't think you have to be an advanced trainee to try specialization. You know, I mean, um, you know, geez, Brett Contreras does specialization with all his clients, yeah. all his girls, you know. Um, I mean, it's all glute specialization and they get tremendous results and not all of his clients are advanced trainees, you know. So, yeah, so, yeah I, I don't think you need to be an advanced trainee to try specialization type routines. That's really cool. Um, and then in terms of obviously, you spoke about the parameter of soreness as an indicator for potentially whether or not you'd increase volume. Were there any, are there any other parameters you might look at to go down this route initially? Uh, and then yeah, just generally, what are you looking at kind of performance markers or anything else? Uh, for me, it was just mainly soreness. Uh, I didn't really use anything else. I mean, Perhaps if, if I, if I was noticing, you know, from one session to the next, maybe my performance dropping off or something like that, then that might've been an indicator. Okay. I can't go any further. Um, um, I know I have one client right now where I've tried, I started to try a volume ramp with him and, and his performance started to decrease. Um, and I, I was like, okay, I think you just need a much longer period of time at low volume training before we're ready to uh, okay. ramp your volume up. So, so I'm keeping him at low volume for now, but, uh, um, so yeah, so, so I think you can kind of, you know, use your gym performance as a proxy too, um, potentially, but, but for me mainly, I mean, my performance was going up, you know, each session. Uh, and so for me, the big one was just soreness, yeah. you know, I just, I, I was trying to minimize, I was using soreness as kind of a rough proxy for muscle damage. I mean, they yeah. don't correlate exactly, but, um, you know, basically I just, I wanted to maximize that repeated bout effect. Whereas basically getting almost no damage from, from a training session. And, and so if I did get some soreness, I was like, okay, I got some muscle damage from that session. Let's get, you know, let's get some adaptation to that, that level of volume. Um, so that I won't be, you know, you know, like I said, I was trying to maximize that repeated bout effect, which is also why I was trying to train each 
body part three days per week yeah. um, because that also maximizes that repeated bout effect. So, yeah, I think that's really important because you'll see people kind of seeing all the research is suggesting volume is super important for muscle growth. And then they'll end up adding volume and potentially training while sore, seeing performance yeah. reduction. So it's important that you kind of clarified that, I think. Yeah, yeah. In terms of obviously during a period of time trying to gain muscle, I assume with your nutrition where you're in a surplus, did you gain weight yeah, during yeah. that period of time? Yeah, a small surplus, maybe around a 200 calorie per day surplus or whatever. So, Awesome. So in terms, obviously you said a 200 or so calorie surplus, what amount of kind of rate of gain was that seeing for you? Um, I, I was shooting for maybe uh maybe one to two pounds a month really so okay um which i uh and that's about what i gained you know approximately and in a, obviously you talked about circumference measurements so you have body weight circumference measurements i guess photos do you use any other markers to kind of assess progress for a person when they're trying to gain muscle obviously we never it's hard to really know so you it, can't use as many as possible I yeah i mean maybe my clothing fit a little bit but other than that yeah. it was just it, I, I really used my load volumes in the gym i just wanted to see you know are my load volumes improving you know am i not not only getting better on my first set, but all am I, am I improving on all my sets, right? Yep. Um, and and so that's I was using that as a gauge as well. So, and then in an off season, I don't know if or in a kind of gaining phase, what's your tend to be like a cutoff point where you're like, okay, I'm to a point of fatness where I need to cut down. Assuming it's not for like preference, or maybe it's not even for a competition. It's just anything more would probably be a like downside i assume it's kind of context dependent but i don't know if you have any kind of good answers there or what you do with your clients yeah i think it is totally context dependent it depends on the client and everything um, i know with me personally for me it it's more about my waist size like like if my pants are fitting way too tight and you know um you know as long as my waist size is you know is in the low 30s in terms of inches you know i'm fine um, but if it gets to 34, 30, you know, up to 34 or more then I'm like, okay, that's too much. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, you know, with my clients, I mean, sometimes I like to say maybe a rough marker of percentage body fat. It, it depends if it's a competitor, you know, uh, obviously I'd like to, you know, not get much higher than maybe 15, 18%, maybe approximately. Okay. And, and like I said, there's, there's problems with body fat percentages and stuff, you know, as I've written about on yeah. my website, just kind of rough gauges. Um, if it's not a competitor, then I think, you know, going up to 20% or so is probably fine, you know, and then once they get up there, um, then I say, Hey, maybe we should cut, but, but it, again, it depends on what they want, you know? So, so, and, and that involves a lot of discussion on where they want to be. So. Absolutely. And I don't know if, Obviously, people will be aware of like partitioning ratios, the P ratio. Is that something that you, I don't know if it's right to say believe in? I think there's some people that take kind of, they, they don't agree with kind of, oh, if you're fatter, then the ratio is out of your favor. Other people very much see it as a theoretical, practical recommendation. I don't know where you stand with that, James. So I used to kind of have, kind of be a believer in that, but there was some recent data that I saw, and I don't even recall the study that kind of questioned that idea um, that, you know, if you have too much fat, that's going to make it harder to put on muscle. I mean, I do know that like for very overweight and obese people that can affect testosterone levels and things like that. So, so obviously when you start getting into extremes, um, but you know, is a guy with 19% body fat going to have a harder time putting on muscle than a guy with 15%? P 
probably not. Um, you know, I don't think the evidence is very strong in that sense. I just think, you know, it just, you know, the more fat you gain, just it, the harder it is, it just makes it that much harder to, to lose it, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think you could get to a point where it's just like, you know, when the muscle gains start to really slow down, um, you get to a point where, you know, if you're still overfeeding, chances are more of that extra calories is going to be going towards fat tissue than muscle tissue. You know, when you kind of reach that point where it just it slows it, the muscle gain slows down so much that it's like, you know, probably a good time to cut there anyway. So. And then with, obviously we talked about in the off season, you kind of have scale weight that we're looking at performance markers, clothing, how that's fitting girth measurements. Do you ever go into as kind of people are getting kind of more interested in this and, Obviously, a lot of the listeners are, I mean, everyone listening is super interested in how to maximize muscle growth. People are looking into doing more and more different things. And I don't know if you've ever or you would ever recommend kind of your clients getting blood work or ever going down that deep and whether or not that's even something useful for a lot of us. I think for most people, it's, it's not useful. I think um, now if someone, is, you know, let's say if, if it's a if, if you're male and let's say you're having some of the symptoms of, of low testosterone, which, you know, generally relates to sexual performance, but other, there's other people reported other things like, you know, lots of fatigue or like, uh, difficulty concentrating, um, you know, it, it can help to possibly get, you know, your testosterone tested, especially if you're in your guy in your forties or fifties or whatever, to kind of see where you're at. Um, um, I think that can be potentially useful. Um, uh, now, if you're if you're a competitor, the thing is, is if you do have low testosterone, there's really, um, you know, it, you're, you're not going to be able to do anything about it if you're competing in drug free organizations, because, you know, because even testosterone replacement, to my knowledge, that the drug free organizations are you know, a no, no on that. So, um so if you're a competitor, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, but if you're a non-competitor, you know, um, obviously things like testosterone replacement or, or even things like, um, you know, there's a fair amount of research suggesting that, you know, um, guys that are like borderline low can benefit from Clomid or Clomiphene, you know, okay. can, it can actually increase their, their natural, their testosterone production that way with actually, and it actually has, you know, at low doses, it has almost no side effects, you know, so, so that's, you know, obviously potential there, but, um, um, but, you know, I've written on my site about testosterone, like, you know, it, it, it does, it does impact the amount of muscle you carry, but not nearly to the degree as people think it does, you know, so, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, I could go on about my, I've, I've been on TRT before, after my accident, I was recovering from it to bring up my testosterone levels and, uh, it definitely is a no-no to be on it. Um, my reasons, it was acceptable by some federations, but yeah, it's definitely not okay. But I still sustain low levels of testosterone and build fine muscle at the moment. So I, yeah. I, I can, I'm a case study for what you were just saying completely. Yeah. In terms of, obviously, this is jumping backwards a little bit. We talked about the surplus of nutrition. I don't know if you have any preferences in terms of uh, macronutrient ranges for an off-season. I don't know where you kind of let, like your protein to be. Some people really like high protein. Other people are very like... 0.8 grams per um, pound things along those lines i don't know where you set on protein some people like kind of keto for massing or um, some people yeah. like the high carb approach i don't know where you sit there james 
Um, I, I think it has to do with uh, personal preference. I mean, I do like people meeting kind of that that typical minimum of 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo. But, you know, most of my clients are over that. I'm well over that. Um, you know, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with going over that. You know, it's not going to certainly hinder your muscle gain. Um, you know, some people suggest that maybe your gains might be a little bit leaner because of the thermogenic effect of protein and stuff. You know, that's that's hard to say. That's debatable. But um, I think it just comes down to personal preference. You know, I mean, if someone can train hard on keto and they can get enough protein intake, then more power to them. Uh, you know, um, I don't think it's going to, you know, I know there's that one study. I actually reviewed it for, in my research review that, you know, question whether keto was great for muscle building. Um, you know, so there are some question marks surrounding that. Um, but other than that, I don't really have a specific macronutrient ratio. You know, most of my clients are moderate. I think as long as you're, you know, anywhere from a moderate to high carb intake, you're going to be fine, you know? Um, so, um, and as long as your fat intake isn't too low, like, you know, cause if your fat gets too low, then you can cause hormonal issues and stuff. But, you know, if you're around 20% of your energy, 20 to 30%, kind of that typical range from fat, I think you're going to be fine. So, no, that's nice. Um, nice and like flexible preferences. Hit your protein, and yeah, for the most part, if you're performing well, then it makes sense yeah. that yeah, it's going to be much of a muchness in many cases. In terms of obviously, you talked about your research review, and there was something that recently came out on it, uh, talking about intercept stretching for hypertrophy, which I thought was fascinating because of kind of seeing it popularized. I think maybe by Dante Trudell with DC training. I, yeah. I'd love for you to kind of talk more about that, what you kind of saw with it and whether or not there was any practical kind of uh, recommendations from it. Yeah. So there was an interesting study. They had people, um, basically people just stretch between sets. So I think they took 90 seconds rest between sets. Um, they had one group just, just not stretch at all. And then the other group did, would do a 30 second stretch in between those during those rest intervals. And they found greater hypertrophy, um, in the group that, that stretched between sets. Um, now there's a lot of caveats to that. It, it was one study and it was a fairly small study. Um, they didn't see significant changes across all the muscle groups. Although when they summed the muscle groups together, they saw a significant difference. Um, um, and, but we still have to be careful because there's also research that has suggested that pre-workout stretching impairs hypertrophy. So the question is, is like, I really what's interesting is really there's been only two studies that have looked at stretching and hypertrophy. There's the one pre-workout study and then there's this study. And so then the question is, is, well, why would pre-workout stretching impair hypertrophy, but then stretching between sets not. Um, so my recommendation to people was um, simply this. Um, the, the, the data that's on pre-workout stretching impairing hypertrophy, it seems to be because it seems to impair training performance. So really, um, if you want to experiment with stretching between sets, go ahead and try it. If you find that it impairs your training performance, then don't do it. Right. Um, if it doesn't impair your training performance, then then go ahead and try it. You know, you, it might possibly enhance muscle gains. You know, what's the mechanism? I don't know. Um, the researchers speculated that it might just be, it could just be an, an additional volume of tension for those people, you know, possibly. Um, it, it's hard to say. Uh, there, there definitely needs to be way more work in that. But that was kind of my recommendation to people. It was just like, go ahead and experiment with it. Stretch between sets. If you find your perform, if it doesn't affect your performance, then, yeah, it m might enhance your gains. Maybe, I, you know, but, um, 
Um, but if it impairs your performance, then then it's a no no. Like you know, it's probably going to impair your gains. So. I've never tried it myself. I've only heard people doing it and heard that it's very uncomfortable. I don't know. Was it kind of just they, was someone stretching them or is it kind of self-stretching? It was just self-stretching. It wasn't, it was, yeah, it was just them stretching themselves. So So I think, I don't know, um, I think Scott Stevenson, I'm not sure if you're aware of him, but he's been on the show and he talked about kind of studies. I forget what the birds were, but they hang weights like off the bird's arms. And this is kind of that tension stretch under load wonder if it's at all similar to that no because they would uh, actually joey antonio did some work like that that was actually i think that was his graduate work i think uh, when he did his phd but uh um yeah they would hang weights off bird wings but this would be for like days they would wow. do this like like there's no break in the stretching you know so it doesn't really it's not the same thing as stretching a muscle for 30 seconds you know yeah so and I guess the kind of we know stretch under load is generally like a good hypertrophic stimulus, and this is more sort of tension based. Whereas obviously, if you're stretching yourself, I guess meta- metabolite buildup might come there. Like you said, it could just be extra tension. We don't know at the moment. Yeah, it's hard to say. Or maybe something about when, when you got the muscle pump going and then you stretch it. Maybe there's some. Uh, maybe it adds to the tension stimulus. I don't know that that's, it's all speculation at this point. So, so the final thing I just wanted to finish on actually was. Coming back to the volume, and you did a great kind of, well, I say a great graph. It just was very kind of simple, and it made it very clear to people. The people kind of, there's a U-shaped curve, and everyone's going to kind of land differently um, to where they're going to benefit most. I don't know if you have ways of identifying where a person might be, um, how someone might be able to identify where they would want to go with their volume. Um, yeah, it's that's a really good question because um, it, it can be difficult to tell because, um, sometimes you'll get performance improvements even on low volume training, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting the muscle gains with it. You know, I mean, we, we saw that in our study. And so, um, um, generally at least what I do with myself is, um, I won't do more than 10 sets per muscle group per session, you know? So for me, like eight to 10 is about what I would consider a, a good range to where you kind of want to max out. Um, um, now that's dependent on things like rest intervals. If you're short doing short rest intervals, you might be able to, you might need to do more, but you know, um, um, so really it, it, I think it's just a matter of, you know, trying to, uh, you know, let's say you're, let's say you're doing six sets per muscle group per session, try adding two sets. If you're still improving after adding two sets, then great. Um, and maybe try even go up to 10. If you're still improving, great. If you if your improvement stops, then you're like, okay, that's probably too much, and then you want to maybe back off. And so maybe that's it's probably a good way to. It, it's really not much different from you know Mike Israel's method of trying to find your max re- recoverable volume. Really, it's just, it's a similar concept. You just keep trying to increase your volume a little bit, um, and as long as you're you're making performance improvements, or if it even helps your performance improvements, then great. But if you feel like things are starting to tail off then maybe that's a sign that, okay, you need to back it off a little bit more. So, Awesome. Yeah, I think that's really good practical advice and kind of see where you're at right now, see if you could potentially benefit from more and move forward with it. You kind of talked about the soreness parameters. I don't know if you found with maybe yourself or other clients, if there's been any muscle groups where it's been like, you can kind of go really, really high in volume or if you've seen just different muscle groups respond differently, like maybe something responds really well to 40 sets, whereas like another group, there's no chance it would ever get to that number. Um, for, I do think 
I do think that the legs can possibly probably handle more volume than upper body. Um, there's some data to support that. Um, although it's not very strong. Uh, there was a study by, is it Rastad, I think as the authors, I don't know where they, they suggested that the, the legs responded a little bit better to volume than the upper body did. Um, even in our volume study, really that the most sig statistically significant results really tended to be in the legs. I mean, every muscle group showed the same pattern, but, but the pattern was most pronounced in the legs. Um, uh, so I would say that I think lower body, you could probably get away with, you know, and you may even need, maybe need more volume to, to respond, uh, than upper body. Um, but like I said, that's very speculative at this point. There's not a, a huge amount of data to, to support that one way or the other. It just kind of hints towards that being the case, but you know, so. And practically, if that was the case, do you think, because a lot of people like the squat and they like the barbell lifts, like a Romanian deadlift. And these obviously, I mean, doing lots of sets of these just for myself personally, like, I don't know, I could do maybe five sets of squats and I'd be done. Like, yeah. I, I might, I'd just be so tired. Do you think the re people could then move towards like leg press, things that aren't maybe axial loading that can bring up that volume? Oh yeah, definitely. And, and definitely more isolation movements. Like I said, I mean, you can handle a lot more volume with isolation movements and stuff and, and, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm even, uh, you know, speculating that, I mean, I mean, I think, uh, I think if you're really going to bump up the volume, I think you'd actually probably get the most benefit out of, because you can do more volume on isolation movement and it, do, it doesn't cause the isolation movements don't cause as much central fatigue. So, um, you know, I wrote about that on my, in the research review. So like, uh, and I know Chris Beardsley has wrote, written about this some too. Right. So like, um, you know, there's central fatigue and there's peripheral fatigue. And, um, what's interesting is peripheral fatigue tends to be beneficial from a hypertrophy standpoint because it tends to enhance motor unit recruitment, but central fatigue is a bad thing because it actually inhibits motor unit recruitment and your big muscle group exercises, squats and things like that cause a lot of central fatigue. Um, and so, you know, you get so tired and exhausted that you're just not able to basically, you don't get the motor unit drive, uh, that you need to, to really enhance your gains. And so, so I, I think, you know, there's probably more benefit to really getting your volume up in your isolation movements, which don't cause as much central fatigue. Um, and, and really you can use more of the peripheral fatigue as a mechanism for really, uh, enhancing that motor unit recruitment. So that's really cool. I guess. That that makes me think of deadlifts. Obviously, there's kind of lots of people love them for hypertrophy. Other people aren't so keen on them. Obviously, they are very centrally fatiguing. Everyone knows that. Do you yeah. kind of what's your kind of line of programming with deadlifts? Do you like them in the program, or do you tend to kind of move away from that movement? I, I for me for hypertrophy programming, I tend to move away from just regular deadlifts, just because I tend to agree with Menno on this a little bit. The the deadlift. I don't think is a great hypertrophy exercise because there's um, um, there's no there's really no eccentric component to it. Um, you know, most of the muscle you know other than the, the erectors and maybe the hamstring. I mean, most of the muscle groups are really just doing You know, you, um, a lot of the muscle groups are just doing isometric contractions. You know, um, it's uh, I just don't think it's an ideal hypertrophy exercise. I'm not saying people shouldn't do them. But, um, you know, um, 
I've used this anecdotally. I've seen people, I've seen pretty small, skinny guys that can deadlift a lot of pounds, you know, you know, there's something about deadlifts that you can get really strong on them without really getting any bigger, you know? So I don't think they're a great hypertrophy exercise specifically, you know, I think some of the variations like, you know, Romanian deadlifts and things like that, um, probably are work better are probably better from a hypertrophy standpoint so are there any other like deadlifts any other exercises that you think are maybe overrated for hypertrophy that get like lots of people end up doing them and do you kind of push towards other exercises instead um that's a good question uh I don't know. It's, I think it's just just mainly the deadlifts. I think that okay. you know, I tend to. Uh, I don't. You know, for my hypertrophy clients, I either won't program deadlifts in there. But if if I have a client who wants deadlifts, you know, I'll I'll do it fairly low volume. Yeah. Um, you know, um, other than that, I think most other exercises. You know, at least off the top of my head, I can't really think of another one that I would say that's you know bad from a hypertrophy standpoint or or you know not as effective. So. Because I know a lot of people, well, it's becoming more popular to try and kind of match, kind of make a resistance profile. So it's kind of the same kind of resistance throughout the curve using bands and things like this. Um, I don't know if, and lots of people are kind of still in the old school camp where they're like, oh, the big lifts like squats and things are like, they're, yeah. they're really important for hypertrophy. Then you've got people kind of going with the bands and trying to make kind of the resistance curves. And then you've got people who love machines and things. I don't know if you are kind of like, you like a mix of these, you see kind of practical application for all of them in some cases yeah i see a practical application for all of them i I tend to program a mix of them with all my clients you know um i don't think one is any better than the other i i think someone can get just as big without doing squats and barbell bench uh you know you don't need the big three you know i I think it tends to be more of an ego thing with people you know i don't think there's any data suggest that you know a squat is really going to be any better than a leg press or some other compound movement for quad hypertrophy, you know? Um, um, so, um, I think it, you know, and I, which I think is a good thing is I think it opens it up to personal preference and also, you know, people have different biomechanical limitations, you know, like, uh, um, like I can't squat. I mean, I used to squat, but I was never a good squatter. Um, and now, you know, I've had a low back issue for a long time. And, and, uh, and I, funny thing is my, my back feels so much better since I stopped squatting, you know? Yeah. So I just don't, you know, I don't squat anymore. You know, it's like now I do the best, the leg exercise that doesn't bother my back is, is the machine hack squat. So that's what I do now. So, um, you know, and there's no evidence that that's any worse than, than doing a regular squat, you know? So, and on another kind of line of thinking, I know just for myself personally, I might be able to do like two or three sets of squats after a deload and I will get like a training response. I'll feel soreness and like that would be a lot of disruption. But if I was to try and kind of get that same sort of soreness response from maybe like, well, leg extensions, I mean, I don't know if I could even do enough sets to really cause that much disruption. But yeah. Like a leg press, I might have to do like double the sets. Is there kind of like obviously three sets potentially takes less time is it kind of like how do we measure kind of different exercises like it's obviously a little bit is the soreness response a good marker for seeing how disruptive an exercise is for you or is the fact you can do the six sets and only get that same amount of soreness a better kind of exercise to be using because there's more volume but it's obviously a different exercise so it's a little bit kind of i don't know if that made sense but i don't know if you no, it makes sense that. Um, I- 
I don't know if one, I don't know if soreness is a good indicator just because, you know, like I said, soreness can be just more of an indicator of muscle damage. Um, but, you know, the evidence is growing, although it's still not clear that muscle damage probably isn't necessary for hypertrophy and may, may even be counterproductive. I mean, that, that's, you know, uh, there's still a lot of debate on that. So, so there's a lot of things that aren't clear about that, but, um, um, I never use soreness as a gauge. Um, really, I just say, you know, how just how are you? Imp- how are you improving? You know, uh, and, and you know whatever works for you if, in, from an improvement standpoint. Um, you know, because um, because the thing is, there's also just differences in the biomechanics of exercises that can even affect things like muscle damage. So, for example, um, con- uh, consider a skull crusher, you know, um, versus like an overhead tricep extension with a rope or a dumbbell, right? Both of those tend to emphasize the long head of the triceps, um, but I guarantee you, you will get way more sore from an overhead extension because you're really stretching the tricep out. Um, but I don't know of any evidence that, that that's actually going to cause more hypertrophy versus just doing a skull crusher, you know. So, um, you know, so it's just the different biomechanics of the exercise. You know, the thing is, for me, I know with overhead tricep extensions, for me, um, it's like, I never get used to those things. It's like, I always get sore from them. You know, even if I'm doing them, you know, on a frequent enough basis where I shouldn't get sore, like, right. it's just, you know, they just cause so much stretch that like, I, I just can't get, I feel like I can't get any good repeated bout effect from those things. So no, it's super but. interesting. Uh, I think that was a really nice kind of yeah summary of that. And I want to thank you massively, James, for coming on and discussing kind of your experiments with volume and all of that. I think you described it really really well and i think that's given a lot of people some things to think about especially any of the hard gainer listeners or potentially some people who again haven't had any results for a while because essentially they're just capped because of time and they can start maintaining some muscle groups and pushing some other ones i mean just hearing your kind of how you go about your practical application of nutrition and training during an off-season phase or a massing phase for someone's really interesting if people want to learn more obviously we brought up weightology quite a lot um, which is a fantastic research review. Where do people want to find that and find more about you, James? Obviously, you share quite a bit on Instagram as well, so I'd love people to head over there. Yeah, yeah. So just uh, weightology.net is my website, and uh, you can find all my social media accounts on there as well, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, and Instagram. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the main, that's the main place where people can find me. It's uh, also my research view, coaching, uh, um, all my podcast appearances are on there. Um uh, I got to say, congr- I didn't know you've done so many episodes. You said the last one was like 103. That's a lot of podcasts. <laughs> yeah, we're, we've been very consistent over here. So it's been good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but that's where people can find me. So. Amazing. Thank you so much, James. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will catch you soon.